I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 9. The Tale of Princess Kaguya, When Marnie Was There, The Red Turtle, and Earwig and the Witch. The next Ghibli film was The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Uh, this was November 2013. Uh, it is directed by Isayo Takahata, the one whose work I don't like, the one who directed Grave of the Fireflies, Only Yesterday, Pompoko, My Neighbors the Yamadas, and this. And having learned his lesson from My Neighbors the Yamadas, he decided to definitely just stick to the attributed Ghibli style because back in uh, the late 90s people looked at that oddball comic strip and thought that I mean that says Studio Ghibli but it seems like they farmed it out to another studio much like uh, Disney did in the uh, 2000s with stuff like it's, it's like Disney's dinosaur nothing about which came out practically the same year nothing about that looks like a Disney film and yet it says Disney right there. My Neighbors the Yamadas was a, a family drama and low key at that and was not popular. And the style, the animation style took a long time to learn and teach to a bunch of new artists who weren't massively comfortable with it and they didn't then carry on using it. And so learning from that mistake, Takahata went, let's do the same thing again. We'll completely change the established Ghibli style again, and we'll make it look more painterly and like uh, classic Japanese art. And it really does look way, way better than the children's flip book that Yamada's constitutes. Although of note, for me, the two best parts of both films are at moments of emotional overwhelm where the world warps and when in this one, Princess Kaguya herself, this was in the trailer very significantly because it is very visually arresting, is running and running and running away from a situation she cannot control and cannot be a part of. And she warps and twists and her the animation becomes very erratic and, and, and fluid, but fiery almost. And it's expressive. And I wish so much of the film was like that, not as strictured and pretty as it is, as much of it is. And the film cost 5 billion yen, which is $49 million, and it made $27 million. So it made just over half of what it cost. Meaning it was a dud, a bomb, people didn't like it. Check's running time, 137 minutes. And my God, do you feel it. Without a shadow of a doubt, if this film had been one hour and 27 minutes, people would have seen it, felt sad and melancholy, and gone to tell other people, it's beautiful, you should see it. But you exhaust people with this runtime and you repeat the same beats over and over again, ups and downs, but not really changing the pace or the momentum of the story or the, the situation they're in for far too long. People walk away exhausted and when asked say, no, don't go and see it. Far too long. You are absolutely right. I really like this film. I like the style. Of all Takahata's films, I like it the most. Yeah, yeah. I and like... it definitely got to me by the end. Yeah. 
Um, when we finally reached the top of the mountain. Yeah. I, uh, the, the, literally at one point, the painterly style of it put me very much in mind of the Akami game. Mm. And it is... Just without the fun. Similarly, yeah, <laughs> definitely without the fun. Uh, it is similarly reaching on mythological and very specifically sort of fairy tale style elements, country wisdom and it's looking at the the nature of everyday poor reliant on the countryside type people who get drawn into a web of uh sin no but don't go in not conflict exactly, but the, the, the complications that rich people feel the need to impregnate their lives with because they're bored, because they don't have enough to do. Statistically speaking, none of you folks have watched this. So, uh, <laughs> the the premise is this. An old fisherman and his wife... He's fi- a bamboo cutter. An old bamboo cutter and his wife find in the forest a turnip. And the turnip turns into a baby. And they take the baby home and they call her Kaguya. He cuts a bamboo stem. Yep. She is inside the bamboo That's stem. That's the one. She's a turnip. And uh, the, she grows up and is a small child. Yes. And she has fun and plays. And they lead a peasant life. And she's, you know, kind of growing up to be a, a, a normal girl. Then, in the forest, because she is a gift from the gods, the old bamboo cutter and his wife are bestowed gifts of... Gold and... Mostly gold. Gold and more gold and silks and things. And they decide, right, we're rich now, super fucking rich. We are going to go live in a pagoda. And they do go and start living like kings. I left the room for a minute and a half where this rather crucial event takes place. And I didn't ask when I sat back down. I was like, oh, okay, so they've been picked up by nobles. Has she met a prince in the forest or something? Because it seemed like there was something to do with a prince in a forest. Is she now about to be married to him through arrangement? And it just went on and on and on. And eventually it seemed like she's a a girl of some renown and people keep coming around and trying to court her. But she feels very pressured and frustrated by this place in, uh, in the world. And then that one beat that I just said there plays again and 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 again until it is two hours and 16 minutes and at the very very end the gods come down from the moon and go right thanks for taking care of her uh did a stellar job (laughs) that's a little moon joke and um we're gonna take her back now so you won't remember your time on this earth and you'll forget this bamboo cutter and his wife and you get to be with your own people. Bye. And then they pick her up, gather her up, and she tries to snatch just a last little moment with them to try to hold on to something of her earthly existence. And as she's drawn away by the gods whose music, again, this is Joe Hisaishi playing beautifully, is way too jolly and way too kind of, you know, everything's great for us. It's like she lived as a rich person, but then the wealthy came down to take her. It's very fable-like, but it's a very sad fable, and it has multiple permutations, but by the time you've hammered people for two hours and 17 minutes, especially with, like I said, her feeling constricted by being rich for so long, 
it's it's like it's almost that you become overwhelmed with emotion that it's finally over. Yes, which is, I mean that that is part of what she's feeling as well because the 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 whole she is sent down to earth by the moon in order that she can experience what it is like to be loved, to be with a family and to be embraced as, a, as their child. And she loves her peasant girl life. And when her dad, having been given this, because he, when he finds her, he's like, oh, she's, as you say, she's a gift from the gods. She's our princess. Initially, that seems just to be, she's our princess. But then when the gold turns up, because the, the moon gods are like, well, we can't expect you to take care of her for nothing. Here you go. They have no idea of the value of money. So rather than just giving him enough to take care of her, they just keep pouring it out of the bamboo until there's loads. I mean, it's one princess, Michael. How much could it cost? <laughs> Ten dollars. Um, I've never really understood child rearing. <laughs> but he decides that this... this uh, effluence and affluence is an indication from the gods that they want her to be kept in luxury so that's why he upsticks and moves them all into the city so that well, you can... would if you were living in a hovel well but but yeah so that but it's he... another one of those stories where it's like don't wish to be rich it's much better to be poor it's, it's there's elements <laughs> of the balance of it though so she doesn't want to go her mother doesn't want to go but her dad decides this has to happen oh and while we're here we're going to try and marry you to the highest noble we can because you're a princess and that's what princesses do so yeah and acts two and three are both mo money mo problems pretty much yeah and that she goes back and forth in all of this you know there's talking to her mother about how miserable she is and finding little ways to to get joy out of this yeah. incredibly restrictive life she's now subject to and having that repeatedly stripped away from her you are absolutely right it is too repetitive and there's at least Two sequences. I could re-edit this film easily into something way more effective. Absolutely, they're, they're making a specific point, but she is courted by five different suitors. It doesn't need to be five. The magic number is three for a reason. Yeah. Um, and then a fourth the, suitor. Oh, I really thought that third suitor was going to change. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. there's a fourth no, no, no. one, We're and he's also going. kind of rubbish and a bit rapey. Yeah. Okay, and then a fifth one. Oh, bloody hell! How are they going to be? <laughs> That's why so many storytellers in this Edo period were executed yes. for just blathering on. Going on a bit too much. Um, there's, a, there's a boy from her childhood that she meets up with mm. again later on. This is another one of the effective moments. Yeah. yeah. He has a life for himself already. But, but there's, there's two moments where this happens. There's the moment where she's in the litter and he steals something and she watches him get beaten by guards. Mm. And then we go away and don't see him again for ages until he comes back with a wife and a baby. You didn't need both. You could have gone with one or the other. But anyway, that's... Or just kept that period between those two moments shorter yeah. and yeah. had one scene with just a little thing to link that. That's how storytelling Absolutely. structure can really help but sometimes. one of the reasons why the end sequence where she's being taken away and told that she will not remember her life on this earth is so... Uh, melancholy and frustrating is that she is frustrated that she didn't actually get to experience the life she wanted because she was taken away from the simplicity and the connection with the earth and the being loved by her parents and having this childhood sweetheart close by and put in an environment where she was not allowed to do the things she wanted. She had to marry this 
whichever person they were going to choose for her. Her choices and her experience were taken away and so what she's losing is as much opportunity as it is memory. Also, she's one tragic end at the hands of a rather overly too amorous prince away from being a Japanese ghost story waiting to happen. Absolutely, and there are frequent scenes where she's shown miserable, her hair hanging over her face and I'm like, is there a well around here because I yeah. really don't want her to go down that there well. There is a reason why they hit those beats so often with angry female female the word is poison now isn't it because people are relegated to you are either female or male angry woman ghosts it's it's cultural guilt it's we have treated them this badly they've got every fucking reason to come back and be a little miffed mm, yes indeed and that, it feels like they could have made a much punchier point if this film had been 87 minutes long. Do not disagree. It is too long. I know. But what there is in it, I really appreciated. And it is certainly my favourite, Tucker Harter. Yes. 35% of the contents in it, I really appreciated. Mm. Just sheer out most of the remaining 65%. Mm. It becomes kind of a knee-jerk thing to say, well, the first thing people say about the Batman is it's very long, isn't it? But then you've got to think about all the other things. It's like, well, I don't know. It's like saying the massive, 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 massive pizza that you've got to eat every fucking bit of or you aren't allowed to leave the restaurant. It is rather big, isn't it? But think about all the toppings. It doesn't matter about the toppings. You've got to eat the whole fucking pizza. It's the size of a cartwheel. <laughs> Here's the problem. Why are, why are Batman films now man versus food? It is very easy for me to be distracted by physical discomfort. If my ass is numb and I'm desperate for the toilet, it's going to be very difficult for me to concentrate on the qualities of your movie. I need the bog. What act is it? Seven. <laughs> How many more acts? Fifteen! <laughs> They're all basically act three, act three, act three, act three, act three, act three. And this was sadly Takahata's last film, but at the same time happily kind of an artistic achievement, it, it even if not a financial one. Visually, it is stunning. It looks gorgeous. And the those moments that you mentioned where the, the drawing style breaks down to demonstrate her emotional state, it really comes across like this is her drawing of her life and when she's angry and frustrated it becomes this scrawl mm. and that, that is so effective and uh, the most commendable is, is that it's very much on side with a girl feeling restrained and constricted mm. it's like it's like only yesterday but with more teeth yes In this world, there's an invisible magic circle. There's an inside and an outside. And I'm outside. Never had that many friends growing up, so I live. 
Why is it that mansion feels familiar somehow? It's really best for you to stay away from that old Marsh house. Just me, just me. <gasps> Throw me the rope! Hurry! In my dreams, I saw a girl just like you. I've been here for a long time. I wish that I was you. I, I can't go very far from the mansion. I need to get back. I don't care who Marnie really is. I just want to help her. Anna! Marnie! Promise me something. That will remain a secret forever. Okay, now we come to one of the deepest measures of warm, melancholy satisfaction that I got out of the Studio Ghibli season. And considering the material we were being presented with, that's saying a lot. This, this one hit me hard in a series of films that mostly hit me. Uh, it is based on the Joan G. Robinson 1967 novel of the same name, which, if you check the uh, synopsis, it follows quite faithfully, although it relocates Norfolk in England and the marshes there to a rural seaside town located between Kushiro and Nimuro in Japan. And it is Ghibli Gothic. You could definitely make an argument for some of their other films touching on this. Uh, Howl's Moving Castle, I think, is probably the highest likely uh, candidate. Yeah. Uh, there are elements of gothic in Spirited Away, but it's it's a different tone. Yeah, it's closer to an Alice in Wonderland story. Gothic, when I say that, it refers to the gothic romance movement, and there's also gothic tragedy. So you've got things like the Bronte sisters, uh, Wuthering Heights, and most definitely is a sort of a, a gothic tragedy that sort of does end in a, a note of happiness. What, so what would that be? A, a melodrama is a good way of putting mm, it. Yeah. In like melodrama is there is there are ups and there are downs, and those are both very sharp. Mm. And we have discussed extensively the nature of gothic and what <laughs> story types it can touch on, and the result was the lights from distant bonfires. Mm. If there's a girl and she's experienced tragedy in the past, uh, if there's a house and it's full of secrets and mysteries, you've got gothic even if you don't want to do gothic yes, at that point. Absolutely. Throw in a white night dress and a diary and we are there. Oh yeah. Weirder things happening at night than during the day? That's gothic, baby. Mm -hmm. We are in gothic flavour country. <laughs> And obviously, so that meant that it was it was speaking my language, but I really engaged with it because it's very good and accomplished at what it does. It is from the uh, director Hiromasa Yonobayashi, who did Arietti. So that's two for two that I absolutely love, especially on this reviewing of uh, Arietti. And I feel like this guy's going to go far. He was so young when he directed, so young, directed Arietti. He has got decades to go before he hits Hayao levels of, I think I should be retiring again. Yeah. <laughs> Although it did make me laugh when they did the thing about, he's the youngest director who's ever worked for Ghibli. He was 37. That is not wildly young to be a director, but... Who are you comparing him to? There's one other option and the man is a grandfather. 37. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I feel like the Ghibli uh, uh, animators call him the old man when yeah, he's not around. Definitely. <laughs> uh, but this was during a time when Mia uh, Hayao had retired again and it seemed like it was going to be the last Ghibli film Mark Kermode reviewed it and said so this would uh, appear to be the last film so after the wind rises we do when Marnie was there and then we shut up shop and could the last person out of Studio Ghibli please switch off the light and we will all cry buckets of tears for this beautiful thing that couldn't last so it has melancholy soaked right into it, which is one of my favorite feelings because it allows you, melancholy allows you to cope, but at the same time it tells you it's not just gonna heal and be fine. It allows you to incorporate things that are sad and bad and traumatic into your life and not be destroyed by them. But you are to be transformed. Now we are not going to spoil this film. It's going to be very difficult for us to talk about the strengths of it without spoiling the film, but it is a mystery at heart, and we need to preserve that for the majority of you who won't have seen it. So this is like our, my number one suggestion of go out and see it, of all of these films. Not that it's the best, but it's the one you need to see without some other tosspot coming along and telling you everything at the end. Or even the middle. There are there are some videos we watched on subtext where there were some younger uh, reviewers who seemed very angry that they were presented with something and then it was snatched away. And I can completely understand that because there is coding in this film that makes you go, ah, I see what they're doing. Wait, no, that's not it at all. Uh, and <laughs> let me synopsize for you a little uh, in a careful fashion. So Anna Sasaki is a 12-year-old girl with low self-esteem living in Sapporo with her foster parents. One day she suffers an asthma attack at school and at the doctor's recommendation to send Anna to a place where the air is clean, her foster mother decides to have her spend some summer break with uh, her foster mother's relatives, uh, which is in this seaside town. So effectively she's gone there to convalesce, mm -hmm. which is again very gothic because yes. there was a lot of uh, tuberculosis knocking around at the time when all of those novels Absolutely. were being written. Industrial revolution created places in the world that needed humans to thrive, but where humans really shouldn't be. Yeah. There's a, a marsh near, or, or a, a lake near her house, but it's uh, the tide it's comes in. Lake, it's a yeah. tidal lake. So the tide comes in, the tide comes out, and across the way, across the causeway, accessible on foot through big puddles during the day, but inaccessible by night when the tide comes in, is an old mansion and it looks fascinating so Anna stands on the key and then a sort of a gruff old man in a rowboat comes by and goes oh you don't want to go down that house <laughs> you know but her curiosity is burning she doesn't get on really with the foster parents she straight up calls uh, a, a late like they're doing like Japanese Halloween or something and uh, he's going oh you got blue eyes you look like a gaijin and, and uh, Anna who's always felt a weird sense of negativity about her own personality like she never felt truly like she belonged to this culture uh, being a foster kid and this is a, a first for Ghibli as well because they mostly concern themselves with manifestly Japanese characters but this is going out of its way to say this girl feels like not part of that and her 
closest connection in this film is a little blonde girl. Like, Ghibli don't do different coloured hair. They don't do that anime-style trope. So this is like a shock of a hair colour that's not orangey. This girl, Marnie, is Caucasian. There are many layers to Anna's isolation as well. It's not just about the cultural, although there is that element to it, but she feels isolated because she's a foster child and she finds it difficult to connect with her foster parents, particularly because something has recently come to light that has changed how she looks at them. Um, she feels isolated from her peers at school because she says there's this even though they, they seem quite nice and they attempt to be friendly, they're not mean to her or anything like that, but she says there's this constant feeling that there is a circle and there are people who are in the circle and I'm always out of the circle. Mm. Although interestingly when it pans back to show Anna in the company of her peers, it almost seems like the circle is actually around her mm. and it's just around her and no one else can get in it. And we get flashbacks to when she was a kid and she's <coughs> sitting alone in a room while a bunch of adults in black clothes talk about what's going to happen to her. So she's got feelings of abandonment here. And this house seems to be deserted during the day, but at night the lights come on, so Anna is burning with curiosity. And when she goes there at night, she meets a young girl named Marnie, who's blonde and seems to immediately uh, uh, take a shine to her. They take a shine to each other. And then they kind of become secret friends. This is again why it's, it feels like you're handing us something and then it's not. And there's a lot of, a lot of closeness, a lot of hand holding, a lot of like they row the boat together with Anna sat in Marnie's lap, and there's this sort of soft, kind of gentle connection there. And there's a definite moment when they're hugging and Anna starts to blush and it's like, oh, this, but it's handled in a way that never comes off as really clumsy or deliberately misleading, I don't think. like Because ultimately those feelings she's having are real, they're just confusing. Yeah, it's, it's, it, to me, the way it comes across to me is that it is about connections that don't really have to be worked for when you meet somebody and there's just this instant rapport and spark that feels right mm. and that can manifest itself in many many different kinds of relationships in many different contexts and there were a lot of books written around about uh, in the mid 20th century by uh, female British authors that seemed to deal with what uh, could at one point be like with Moondial and Tom's Midnight Garden is this time travel is Marnie a ghost what's going on here and we're not bloody telling you yeah. so <laughs> it's, also yep. one thing that I and this ties back to that whole sort of this this time travel concept in in stories around this time the uh, Anna is drawn in a very gender non-specific way when uh, the festival happens and she dresses up in very feminine clothing yeah. she looks distinctly uncomfortable it doesn't mm. feel seem right for her and this is when the lady says oh you got very blue eyes like a gaijin she calls her a fat cow and runs away yeah because she's just like ridiculously uncomfortable at this point um but these these stories that were written with that sort of across two worlds kind of concept often looked at how the the hero our modern day heroine gets mistaken for a boy in the past because she's dressing in a way that to us just feels like well that's just the standard but back then it's like that is very not coded female there's also an aspect of war entailing separation the original book 
it would appear that when she finds Marnie's diary, it was written around the First World War time. And then there's hints at something that may have happened around the Second World War. So there's this constant state of the world thrown into chaos and torment. And it would appear that Marnie's parents move around a lot, hence the house being empty a lot during the day. Like Anna, she feels rootless. She feels like she can't connect to the place she's in. She feels very temporary about herself, making her very receptive to Anna being there. I don't know how else to talk about this film without giving too much away, but Sharon did say something very specific, which immediately, well, she tried to say it and then burst into tears for a good four minutes when, before, when we were preparing our notes. And it was in connection to a real thing that had happened between us, when I came to move out of my college dorm rooms and move in with Sharon, who at the time was just a really good friend, uh, she greeted me at the door with, welcome home. While the romance aspects of this film aren't necessarily based in a place of intentionality, there is something to be said for feeling like you are home with a specific person rather than it being a location. I think we're going to have to leave it there with the proviso that we may return with a full spoilers show that we can talk about everything in this film because it feels like it's too rich to just say, to just put into a bottle and then throw into the sea and hope that enough people see it without actually delivering what's behind the message in the bottle. So, food for the future. Your homework, folks, is to track down when Marnie was there and see it. Next up is The Red Turtle from 2016, which was Studio Ghibli deciding to go in a new direction. No Miyazaki anymore. No Hayao Miyazaki. And rather than just shutting up shop with Marnie, they enlisted, I think for the first time ever, a foreign director, Michael Ducot DeWitt, who is Dutch and specializes in minimalist animation. And this is a film, and I don't say this about many films, that you could show to Neolithic humans, cavemen, and they would understand it. You could show it to people around the world right now, and they would understand it. You could show it to Greeks, you could show it to Tibetans, you could show it to Australian Aborigines or Nigerian royalty, Peruvians and the French. It transcends language. There's a kind of a, a turtle eating its own turtle tail in so far as a couple of very influential video games that themselves drew influence. So the video games of Fumita Ueda, who designed Eco in 2001 and Shadow of the Colossus in 2005, and The Last Guardian, which was a very long project, finally got released in 2016. The lands we are presented with are abandoned. In the cases of his games, there's always human architecture and ruins. 
old Gormenghast-style castles and a sense of something was previously flourishing, now definitely not. But they all explore solitude and your character uh, in Eco, at least you get to have a, a friend uh, with a, a one-horned boy and a girl. And uh, Shadow of the Colossus, your friend is your horse, Agro. And uh, obviously, The Last Guardian, it's about the boy and his beast. But the games themselves fed into the Zelda games. Uh, Twilight Princess most definitely was going for that particular style. And Breath of the Wild went on to take it even further. And yet the Red Turtle feels like those games, but at the same time Zelda feels like a Ghibli. So it's it's sort of the, the snake intertwining with itself, and it's, it's, it's a multitude of snakes. It is a lonely story about a man marooned on a desert island, trying to get off originally in Act 1, uh, building himself a raft, making friends with crabs. He doesn't speak, he only sort of calls out uh, but it has no horse to communicate with and it has no volleyball to make friends with and he there's one really tense scene where he slips down a cliff into a lagoon but it's completely enclosed on all sides and it's very small so uh, of, of slippery inclimbable rocks it's like it's constantly raining in Breath of the Wild he ain't going anywhere and so he starts to panic because there's no way out so he, he goes under, under the water to see if there's a, a way out of what appears to be a solid pit down there and then he finds some loose rocks and squeezes himself into an underwater passage which you then observe him trying to push his way through and get stuck and it's like all of the terrors in The Descent the movie by uh, Neil Marshall, minus one rather sizable element, which you'll all know if you've seen that film, but with added, and you're underwater, and trapped, and are running out of air. And I was like, I need to get out of this film. So when he finally pulls himself free and back out and into the main sea, it was like breathing a sigh of relief. But this doesn't look like a Ghibli film. This looks like a French film, or a... a, 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 a a film from Brazil or something. It has these little dot black eyes rather than the big Ghibli eyes. There's no big fat Ghibli tears. There's no 1940s cars or charming aircraft. It doesn't feel like a Ghibli aside from the fact that it has beautiful attention to detail in the animation, which is true of a lot of other uh, animation houses. Yeah. Cartoon it, Saloon does that. There is a simplicity in the animation style, in the art style, that reflects the simplicity of the story and the simplicity of the life that the man comes to embrace. Yeah. And I could see Ghibli in the future adopting different animation styles each time. It's not necessarily a measure for success, though. When they tried it with My Neighbors the Yamadas, they failed. When they tried it with The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, really trips off the tongue, they failed. When they tried it with Earwig and the Witch, coming up, folks, they failed. Mm. I it, think ultimately, there's a Ghibli style. Everyone knows what it looks like. They want it. I was just about to say, it's a branding issue. There is, a, there is a, an art style that looks like Ghibli, and it's not so much specifically that people will reject it if it doesn't look like that, but they won't know it's Ghibli. In their gut, even if they see the word Ghibli on the advertising, mm. it doesn't feel like a Ghibli movie. And likewise, other studios that have adopted that style, 
you watch them and your brain's going, it's ghibli, it's ghibli, it's ghibli, it's ghibli, it's ghibli, no matter how much you know it's not. Hmm. So the man gets frustrated on the island, tries to escape on a raft that he makes several times, and the raft gets scuppered repeatedly by the titular Red Turtle. So the man becomes infuriated at this thing because it's not just like it breezes past him in the water and accidentally knocks him and the the raft comes undone this turtle has it in for the man seemingly it doesn't want him to leave the island although he doesn't initially know it's the turtle that's doing it he just knows that there's something that keeps stopping him from leaving yeah and uh, it's kind of like the, the smoke beast in lost it winds up with a confrontation on a beach with the turtle effectively washed up and defenseless and then the man beats the turtle with a stick which is a uh, astute allegory for mankind's treatment of nature or something it is very specific that at this point the turtle is no threat to him and is demonstrating no aggression or anything that he is not acting out of self-defense he is acting out of frustration mm. And again, because this is entirely silent and it's just done through physical performance of this animated character and the emotional connection and rejection of the world around him and how much, that's really what it comes down to, how much he embraces or kicks away and hits with a stick the world around him. Mm. Because he's surrounded by nature, but it's not necessarily kind nature or really all that hostile nature it's just uncaring that's nature. the thing nature is not kind or hostile nature just is you're sat on it it's up to you the thinking human being to determine how much you embrace or push it away it can feel a lot more hostile if say you were on the surface of venus or in Siberia. True. It can feel fucking hostile when you're sat in a pretty wood and it suddenly starts raining and now you're under a tree getting water down the back of your neck. But there's a certain measure of intentionality which we read into things like it starts raining. Mm. We personify nature. Yes. There's a reason we call her Mother Nature. Mm, indeed. It, it is difficult for humans to interact with and engage with things that are can't say inanimate, that's not quite the right word, but, but things that don't have a consciousness that we can connect mm. to. And then, in a turn of events that would surprise the cavemen, the turtle turns into a woman. And the woman has a battered shell that the man slowly takes off her? Um, yeah, because it, she's, she's transformed within the shell, so the shell is now sort of encasing her like a, like a blanket, I suppose. So she's, I suppose she's... Uh, this is the only time that the movie crosses over with a Dana Carvey film, The Master of Disguise. Yes, indeed. Is this not turtle enough for you? No, no, it's too turtle. <laughs> what then happens is a wordless bonding moment between this enchanted turtle woman... Also, you say this might surprise the caveman, but the number of yeah. ancient stories about animals that turn into women mysteriously, there's a lot of them. Okay, but the first one that the storyteller, <laughs> who eventually became mythologized as Aesop, uh, was, was telling... And then the turtle turned into a lady, excuse me? Yeah, the first one, they were like, wait, what? I am not buying this. And then the time he got the tenth, he was like, right, there was this bat. The bat turns into a woman? Oh, fuck it. Man. Oh, you've heard it then. <laughs> <laughs> Was this bat? No, uh, well, the bat turns he turns in into a man. The bat turns into a vigilante. Okay, this one I like. What's a vigilante? <laughs> we haven't even invented police yet. Anyway. I think technically vigilantes came first. Yeah. Just anyone who would crack someone else's head in with a rock. So the, the film then 
quietly, slowly follows them through a relationship as they uh, grow to connect with each other. They uh, begin to mature together and the man accepts that he will remain on this island and the turtle woman clearly accepts that she will not be a turtle anymore. Uh, and they have a child, a monsoon comes, fucks everything up and there's a, a, a series of events that uh, again kind of feel like they cross over a little with the blue lagoon remember that one yes mm. and honestly the, the the tail end of this movie and it'll only make sense to people who've seen both reminded me of the end of zardoz mm. you know yes the idea of a child growing up and going right i have had about as much from this island as i possibly can get i'm off and goes off to seek his fortune in the world not resigning himself to staying on this island and then it sort of draws itself to this melancholy end where the, the, the fleeting nature of human life, which seems to have gone by in the blink of an eye, uh, just sort of settles with us and we're reminded how long turtles actually live. This is one of those films that you either fall into one of three camps. You either absolutely love it and are enchanted by it and try to get everyone else to watch it, or you watch it once and go, huh. That was really good. I don't think I need to see it again. Or you throw rocks at the screen and try to kill the projectionist with a stick. What did you like about it? Uh, everything that we've discussed so far, the, the subtlety of it, the presentation of a natural world that is at once a retreat and also a threat and makes the, the character feel uncomfortable, but at the same time he can't turn away from it because it's all encompassing the nature of companionship and that it doesn't necessarily you, you don't have to be in a crowded room to feel like you're connecting with another human with with human space in fact often you need the surrounding uh, isolation and just have one or two people to really feel like you're able to make those connections because there's no distractions it's about that sense of modern it, it doesn't talk about this it doesn't show the modern life he's come away from not really did he have a modern life well he's wearing um oh yeah he is wearing a shirt he's wearing a shirt and trousers that suggest that he comes from a culture that has a degree of modern sophistication the extent to which we do not know hmm. but the bottom line is he again the, the cavemen from... being shown this would start throwing stones at the screen the moment he's wearing a shirt because they're like what the fuck is that thing witchcraft <laughs> No, buttons. Um, I mean, of course, we'd, we'd have to understand that, like, we'd be projecting this on the wall of a cave. They'd be running at the wall. It didn't take them long to figure out shirts. But a lot of them wouldn't understand the sea. Mm. Yes? Yeah, no, no, no. If you that's, lived inland an and you didn't venture out of your territory. I was going to say, no, hang on a minute, but yeah, if you were a long way from the sea. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to get at is that it is showing the nature of an uncomplicated life and the virtue and appeal that is within that and the level of complexity that connection brings to life and how sufficient that can be to give us just enough for it to be worth keeping going. Finding home with another person rather than trying to escape to a home. Yeah. Hmm. 
Erica, you haven't ever wished a family would adopt you, have you? Nope. Anybody who'd choose me would be pretty unusual. <gasps> we'll take this one. For the first time in my life, I'm being made to do something I don't want to do. Now then, let's you and I get a few things straight. My name is Bella Yaga. I'm a witch. Great! You agree that you'll teach me magic, and I agree to help you out. If you work really hard, I shan't do anything to hurt you. <gasps> a love potion for the boy next door? All of these are pretty useless to me. The spell I believe you're looking for is somewhere towards the back. Hang on, you actually talk? Of course I do, just not very often. In this household, there's one rule that's crucial. You must on no account for any reason ever dare disturb the Mandrake. Don't be rude. Don't disturb me. I'm here to Ewig? A hole left by a witch can only be filled by a witch. Well, so I was told. Can't wait to start! Earwig and the Witch. This is based on a 2011 book uh, by Diana Wynne-Jones. She wrote Howl's Moving Castle in 1986, but then two follow-ups, Castle in the Air and House of Many Ways. I feel like it might have been a better idea to do one of those two follow-ups for this film. Right. Rather than Earwig and the Witch, which she wrote in 2011, while she was dying. She died pretty much before this book was published. Okay. Is there any connection between Laputa and Castle in the Air? No, and I think that's why they had to call it Laputa in Europe, so that it wouldn't get confused with Castle in the Air, the uh, 19, 1990 the 1990 so book that happened Castle. after Castle right. in the Sky. Right, so Castle in the Sky came out before that. So yeah. there's, right, okay, no connection. It's just coincidence. So clearly, Goro Miyazaki was read Diana Wynne-Jones as a child and latched onto her books and really, really liked them. It may be that he read Earwig and the Witch in 2011 that, uh, you know, as an adult, maybe he read that to, because he had a kid around that time. Mm. Maybe he read that to his kid and, and they liked it and so he made it. That was what uh, M. Night Shyamalan said about Avatar, wasn't it? Mm. Either way. Earwig and the Witch. In 1990s England, a witch leaves her child Earwig at St. Morwald's Home for Children, which does good shepherd's pie, we get told repeatedly. The matron head of the home thinks that the name is unfit for a child and changes it to Erica Wig. Years later, Earwig is a rambunctious 10-year-old who is very comfortable in an orphanage where everyone does what she wants. She likes living there with her friends, Custard, and does not want to get adopted. One day, a strange couple, Bella Yaga and Mandrake, or The Mandrake, uh, who's played by Richard E. Grant, and he's this very tall, gaunt, Tim Burton-style figure with these sort of, like, round, rimless, armless, lensless pair of spectacles. And he's very, like, he doesn't speak. He's just, like, gruff and grim. And kind of feels like this is... We're in Roald Dahl territory now, because Bella Yaga is a crabby old bint. And I was like, this is so our 
thing. Like a, a little girl gets adopted by a clearly obviously a witch and the witch is all grumpy and the girl is grumpy too and the girl and the grumpy witch sort of grapple with each other and eventually they start to like each other and then we get to the point where the grumpy old witch ends up putting her life in danger to save the child and so then that works the other way as well. No, that is not what this is at all. She stays a grumpy old She's horrible and boring, and so's Earwig. This film should have been called The Mandrake and just followed this guy's music career, because it's way more interesting than the film itself. So yeah, when they get home, Bella Yaga tells Earwig that she's a witch, and that she only adopted Earwig to get an extra pair of hands to help around the house. Not technically true. I'm going to reveal the end of this, because it's fucking bobbins. Uh, they, they, she and the Mandrake and the mother at the beginning... This really cool-looking witch with bright, deep red hair in ringlets who was riding on a fucking motorbike being pursued by a VW Beetle that was trying to eat her and her baby or something. Most interesting character in the film, not in the film, but they apparently were a rock trio. Like, they were uh, the ABBA of their day, I suppose, the AB. Uh, they, they used to sing songs and be punk, and it's like, okay, cool, so it's going to be like a musical. So we're going to, like, get lots of flashbacks to get up, get in, da -na -na -da -na -na. and, like, it's going to be like the punk scene in the uh, in the 80s or night. No, it's not going to do that either. No, it's cool, because, like, you got all these concepts, and you don't want to do any of them. That's cool, Goro. Okay. okay. But at least you're going to do it with, like, a, an animation style that makes them appealing characters and, and something that you can actually appreciate looking at, even if the story's a bit thin on the... No. You no, don't want to do that either? either. No. You're just going to make it with shit CG that makes it look like a slightly polished food fight. Right. If you... Mm, slightly polished food fight the movie. Okay. This film has received serious hate from Ghibli fans. The problem is that hate is deserved. <laughs> I want, I said, as we set out, we're gonna go easy on this film, but I can't, it makes me so angry. <laughs> it makes me so, like, Hayao Miyazaki clearly phoned up his son during the uh, premiere and went, son, yep, fuck off. Just wanted the phone to say, you're a huge disappointment. Clang. It's so, aimless as a story. It's like, you'll mash that potion together or I'll make you eat worms. And then the next scene, mash potion or I'll make you eat worms. And Earwig's like, all you say is you make me eat worms. And I'm like, yeah, make her eat worms. That's something. Even Earwig notes how boring and repetitive this movie is. Mm. I, uh, on one level, I really, really sympathise with Goro Miyazaki. He... I was going to say he was put in. No, he put himself in the position of having to live up to a master of the craft. And that is incredibly difficult. There was no way that he was ever going to be able to, to, to match his father's accomplishments in an industry and, a, and a, uh, a medium that were not really his. He's an architect. He's really good at that, as far as I can see. Let his, Goro Miyazaki build his, buildings. The, his work with the museum, 
His, the, the, the way he designs the buildings and the backdrops within the films he makes. I don't know. Earwig and the Witch is Maybe boring. not in Earwig because of the, the style, but like the... the... Well, maybe not in Earwig because of the style. So an architect can't make a good thing using computers. Well, I believe yeah. computer it's, it's technology like... has been helping architecture for quite a while Yes, now. I know. But what I mean is he then tried to translate that into an, uh, like an animation style that did not look good and that he was clearly not an expert with... Look, Goro, would you try and build a building using only your elbows? No! Then don't do this! It's the same thing! But every film he makes seems to be a... Okay, can I impress you with this? No? Okay, all right, I'll try something else then. Can I impress you with this? No? All right, what about this? It just feels like he is repeatedly banging his head on a brick wall and all I want him to do mm. is stop because he's hurting himself. A lot of the fans of Ghibli were pointing directly at the fact that they're now using 3D CG animation and that's bad. That's the bad thing. They're pointing at that and saying, you've changed the Ghibli style. It is not supposed to look like this. This is shit. So that made me think that can't be the case. There's got to be good CG 3D animated anime out there that's actually worth watching. In a cinematic milieu, we didn't want to start getting into whole series, but let's look at films. And so we watched... Dragon Quest Your Story, and it was wonderful. We'll talk about that and its director in a bit. And we watched Doraemon Stand By Me by the same director, and it's wonderful. And we watched Doraemon Stand By Me 2 last night by the same director, and it's wonderful. And we watched Lupin 3 the first. And it's fan-bloody-tastic. It's not the CG. All of those films I mentioned above are done in 3D animation. But I was thinking about Earwig and the Witch and going, is it just that it's got terrible, janky-looking CG that looks bad and there's no tone to it at all? Like, it's all shot in sort of the middle of the afternoon. Like, sunlight barely enters into it. There's no real sense of wind or rain. And the weather doesn't seem to mirror the feel of the scenes. Mm. You look at the way people walk in Earwig, it's like yeah. this. We're walking around with our backs incredibly straight and our feet like marionettes. The early Clone Wars film, yeah. do you remember that one? Yeah. Where no one has any weight, gravity isn't a thing. This is more detailed than that. You do get some texture. We've come on say. in leaps and bounds since Checks Notes 2007. Indeed. It's not the textures, in particular Earwig's mother's hair. It's wonderful. Looks amazing, oh, it's beautiful. Get her out of the movie as fast as possible. But the... Animation, the secret's in the word. It has to look good when it's moving. Yeah. And this really doesn't. And it's just to do with the way everything flows into one another, or at least it should. It doesn't. Everything is very stiff. There's there's no there's no soul in there. <laughs> well, he originally. That's what it feels like. Uh, there's lots of shots of him with big hand puppets, like uh, Muppets, in the animation studios like waggling their mouths and saying I want this in 3D animation like he's showing it to the other uh, animators who are like oh, fucking hell I've got to do this and we've seen scenarios where Muppety type things are done in CG and look really good I can't think of any right now but we, we've seen like puppets like the Toy Story films do a really good job of making us feel especially Toy Story 4 is, is shocking how it's gone to photorealism mm -hmm. from the very stylized plasticky original yeah. and you could counter that with saying yes but if everything's photorealistic 
then nothing will have its own identity visually anymore. To which I gesture to every live-action film ever made. The way you light those scenes, block those scenes, frame those scenes, shoot those scenes, and edit those scenes. And then, the way you colour grade those scenes. Everything plays into its own aesthetic. Animation is no different, and there is definitely a generic form. Looks a little bit like Frozen, a little bit like The Incredibles, a little bit like Fortnite, and Earwig and the Witch can't even match that. It does look generic, but an ugly kind of generic. A dissatisfyingly absent of detail and nuance generic. Like the whole thing is made of the plasticky flesh of hollow Cupid dolls. And it is quite possible for uh, films to get a, what looks like stop motion. You look at the Lego movie. Yeah. You, you're constantly well, you, asking yourself, it, did they make this with Lego figures? They've got fingerprints on the figures, even though it's actually computer graphics. The amount of detail in that thing, it's astonishing. But I thought, no, it's still not that. Even if this was animated by the animators of the Lego movie, would it still be bad? And the answer is yes, because Beowulf, People fucking hate performance capture animation. They rejected it because it looks almost human, but not quite. So everyone looks uncanny. You know, fire looks good, but then horses look bad. It's it, you know, people. People don't like that animation. I love that story underneath Neil Gaiman's rewriting of the ancient fable of Beowulf, as performed there. I can overlook the janky CG and the attempts at making everything seem human and everything seems inhuman as a result, uh, the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol by Robert Zemeckis. Mm. I can take all of that because the story at the core is fantastic. The story in this, like I said, the trio with this unseen mother were a rock group. They also seem like they were almost going to be a polyamorous trio. It certainly seems like the, the mother and the mandrake had a thing going on. But then when she went and disappeared, presumably died, one assumes, otherwise why would she give her baby to an orphanage? It seems like the witch, the titular witch, the witchler, Bella Yaga, beautiful witch, also voiced in a way that's really dislikable. We'll take this one. Now then, let's you and I get a few things straight. My name is Bella Yaga. I'm a witch. If you work really hard, I shan't do anything to hurt you. Vanessa Marshall. Oh God, she was Black Widow in Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Mary Jane MJ Watson in Spectacular Spider-Man, where she did a fantastic job. Poison Ivy in The Brave and the Bold. She's been in some stuff. Gamora in the animated Guardians of the Galaxy TV show everyone's forgotten. Oh, in Harley Quinn, she was Wonder Woman and Giganta! She was in Doctor Doolittle 3. I didn't even know there was a Doctor Doolittle 3. She was Velvix in Garfield's Pet Force. Oh, Olga Gurlukovic in Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. That's a fantastic performance. But here, she is given... I mean, it's not her fault. She's given nothing to glom onto. It feels like she probably was expecting the, the witch to come around and actually become like a Granny Weatherwax figure herself. This is our territory, people. I, with the help of Sharon, write stories about crabby people learning to like each other. And magic happens in these stories. And it feels like there's this secret thing that happened in Earwig and the Witch that we're not going to be told. And the big climax is going to be the revelation of what actually happened. And as Accented Cinema pointed out, the dramatic climax of this film 
is Earwig shoving worms into walls over and over again. The same animation looping over and over as she just keeps putting these magic worms into a hole that go into Mandrake's room to piss him off. And then she eventually talks to Mandrake and he sort of says a bit of stuff about something, none of which I can remember. And then the film just ends and they're driving around a bit and it seems like Earwig settled in after nothing. Nothing. No emotional growth was had. No big climax was had. It felt like the pilot for a TV show. And then the absolute crowning, what the fuck moment, Earwig opens the door and her beautiful mother is standing there and she's like, hello, Earwig. Credits. Are you fucking This does not even have the basic elements of it. You know when I said that Morbius is just the basic elements of a movie, the basic elements of a story? This doesn't even have that. You gotta add chicken! This is the <laughs> celery and carrots of a story. It has no chicken and the broth is just hot water. What the fuck? Like, it almost seems like Goro made this movie out of spite to go see, it's hard making a movie. I made a movie that isn't even a movie. Oh, so aggravating. So aggravating. Because mouthy little girls can be some of the best cinematic characters. Mm, that's why they turn up so often. <sighs> because, like, that's the thing. Girls are supposed to be the good ones. Girls are supposed to be seen and not heard, diligently upstairs doing their homework. That's what you're handed. She's making faces, naturally. <laughs> so, ergo, you'd probably quite like a mouthy girl who talks back. Yeah, yeah, so would I. But that's not really what we get. <laughs> just a deeply unpleasant movie that just goes and then stops. It's awful. It's the Nadir of Ghibli. And were it not for his dad coming out, it, it, it was so bad. How bad was it? It was so bad, Hayao Miyazaki came out of retirement again, again. <laughs> to make another film to go, no, that is not going to be the full stop on Studio Ghibli. I'm doing it again. Fuck it, we're doing it live! Okay, that is now officially a phrase. It was so bad, it made Hayao Miyazaki come out of retirement. And he's been dead for 15 years. <laughs> <sighs> so, yeah. However, we can't just end on that sour, sour note. And even though we will be coming back with a full, in-depth, proper School of Movies exploration of my favorite, Spirited Away, we want to talk to you before we go about Studio Ponok. Come on, Peter, let's go. Mary, stop. Everyone knows you're not supposed to go into the woods on misty days. I found it in the woods. The witch's flower. They only bloom once every seven years. They say witches used to seek it out. Ah! What is going on? Ah! Tonight, I really am a witch. This is Endor College. One of the most prestigious schools for witches. How do you do, Miss Mary? This is amazing. You're a once-in-a-century talent. A remarkable witch.
world, there exist certain powers that can never be harnessed. That girl has discovered where the flowers are. This little flower will change the world. Peter! We have to go. Come on, Tib. You're going to be the subject of my most important magical experiment. That girl could ruin everything. <gasps> I mustn't give up. I made a promise. We are going home together, all of us. Give me your hand! There are two projects we want to talk to you about regarding where... Studio Ghibli has been going since the beginning of the Miyazaki retirement plan <laughs> saga <laughs> series. <laughs> it's just a saga now. It involves attaching himself to his desk with rubber bands. Okay. First of all is Nino Kuni, which began, strangely, most people won't remember this, as a Japanese-only Nintendo DS game. Uh, called Dominion of the Dark Dijin in December 2010. And then it was made with Studio Ghibli animators helping out, character designers, and it had actual Studio Ghibli animation for some of the key cutscenes, and it had Joe Hisaishi on music. So it was the closest thing to a Ghibli movie you could get, and it was all in Japanese on the DS. There has been a translation since then, and I went back and, and checked it out, and it's like, yeah, well, this is pretty much the one I'm, I'm used to. Because then it was re-released as Wrath of the White Witch on the PlayStation 3, so suddenly the shitty speakers of the Nintendo DS were uh, transferred to the orchestral scoring possibilities of the PlayStation 3 and, you know, playing it on your TV. And it came alive. And it was then remastered for the Switch and for PlayStation 4. And it's it, uh, Wrath of the White Witch is a really solid game and that is a fantasy Ghibli movie as well. And it got a second game in January 2013, uh, Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom, released on PlayStation 4. And it eventually got a feature film uh, in 2019, released on uh, Netflix in the UK at least, uh, simply called Nino Kuni, which is technically a third story that takes place long after the first two and actually has direct ties back to that first game. So it's a whole trilogy that exists outside of Studio Ghibli, but has its own identity. Mm. Nino Kuni just means, like, fantasy world, doesn't it? Or something along those lines? Second country. Okay. So, yeah, it's, they're all about characters who start in one world and then go to another. Yeah. And it's a really beautiful technical achievement. I would say that uh, Breath of the Wild is, again, is an unofficial, like, it's so soaked in, in Ghibli sensibilities that it feels more like Ghibli than, say, mm, I'm just picking a name out of a hat, Irig and the Witch. But if you have the time and the money to track it down in any format, even the DS version still holds up if you can get the translated version of that. But ultimately, I think the easiest one to get hold of will probably be the PlayStation 3 one. This is absolutely worth playing. The other thing I want to talk about is Studio Ponok, a Japanese animation studio based in Musashino, Tokyo. Uh, it was founded in April 2015 by Yoshiaki Nishimura, former lead film producer of Studio Ghibli. He worked on Howl's Moving Castle in 2004, 
a Japanese documentary film on Studio Ghibli, which we really need to see, called The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness in 2013, The Tale of Princess Kaguya that same year, when Marnie was there in 2014, and then the next year, clearly this had been brewing for a while when he found out the old man was leaving, uh, he founded Studio Ponok. And I've seen him on uh, interviews saying, you know, this is... It's, we don't have the Ghibli name, and we have a lot of responsibility to sort of carry on the legacy, but you know, we're never gonna be as successful as Ghibli. And he's very humble about that. And it's, it's like, honestly, you are bringing this forward spiritually, the, the, the work ethic, but at the same time, the emotional ethic mm. that has been carefully cultivated for decades now. Yeah. The, the way he talks about what Ponok are doing and from observation of what they've produced so far, it seems to me like the driving ethic behind them is to do with these are the stories we want to tell and these are the kind of films that we want to make. It's, it's creatively driven rather than it being about these are the heights of animation that we want to achieve. This is the legacy that we want to pick up. They very much seem to feel themselves to be the child of Ghibli rather than the, the business partner that's taking over the reins yeah. or anything Or, like you know, Ghibli are dying, we can pick at their corpses and uh, we can like make some scran before people get tired of not this. Not that, not that. Not that at all. <laughs> Imagine if Walt Disney had lived all the way up to the mid to late 80s and was trying to retire from Disney and the films that had been produced over the time between Jungle Book, which is the actual one he died during, and the Black Cauldron had been kind of magnificent uh, on the par with things like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella and the things of their glory days rather than the, the rescuers and the Aristocats. Their, their mouse, dog and cat phase that we've described already. Definitely childhood favourites, but not the same level of acclaim. More of a, it settled into a groove of Disney being dependable, but it was never really gonna wow you. The fact that it changed to the less painterly Xerox process also had a, a effect on the animation. I love that pencil scratch feeling. I love the fact that, um, especially in non-remastered versions, you can see like this, the little brief shots of pencil lines uh, as uh, characters move around. It's, it's a little more scrappy, a little more, you can connect with the people who made it. But imagine Walt had lived and was looking to retire and Walt's no good son, Goro. <laughs> <laughs> Goro's lovely, I'm sorry. He, I, so many people hated Earthsea for no good reason. That was his best film. Also, I mean, from up on Poppy Hill, really solid work. Earwig, baffling, but... Galt, Galt Disney. Galt Disney, yeah. So if Galt Disney, Chauncey Disney, <laughs> made The Black Cauldron, <laughs> And Walt was like, oh my God, I'm coming out of re uh, retirement to make um, The Little Mermaid. The person I'm thinking of is actually Don Bluth. Remember Don Bluth was, uh, hated the new direction that Disney was going in, the much more corporate. We brought in Michael Eisner and then Jeffrey Katzenberg and they were doling out orders and turning it into a sweatshop. And Don Bluth was like, fuck this. Loaded 10 Disney animators into a truck and drove off to seek their fortune. That literally happened, you're laughing. That's literally what happened. <laughs> I'm just imagining them all with those like sticks and bindles over their shoulders. God's sake, follow me to riches. <laughs> And then it's like the Enron ride of broken dreams, so it's like uh, an American tale. We're all gonna be rich! Ah! Then uh, uh, Land Before Time, we broke even! No! 
whorehouse. That's good satire. Studio Ponoc is like a humble version of that, but rather than it being striking away, it was a case of, I can see the studio around me that appears to be saying, will the last animator out of here please shut off the lights? So he's like, I'm gonna get my own Studio Ghibli. But we are not gonna be disrespectful to either Blackjack nor Hookers. Indeed. What do you think this is, DreamWorks? <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg flipping the bird at, at the still alive Walt Disney. Is that, well, that's just rude. In my head, played by a Jimmy Stewart. So what's your reason for doing this, Jeffrey? Well, everyone in this building pissed me off. So, uh, it's, it's interesting, you should have an entire company founded on spite. <laughs> I was remarkably successful because mm. of it. That's the really... Cheese my onions. Okay, so uh, Jeff, Jeffrey, uh, you know, uh, from uh, one studio head to another, uh, can you give me a, a little glimpse of what you got coming up? Okay, I definitely have. Somebody. Oh, this. Oh, you know, I, I, you know, you're, you're coming around here like this, Jeffrey. You know, you're, you're asking to borrow money from me. <laughs> anyway. So he. So what we're effectively saying here is that the guys who founded Ponoc are not. Jeffrey Katzenberg, and they are Nor not Don Bluth. Don Bluth. Yeah, no. It's, it's more a case of, I want to keep this precious, precious thing alive. Mm. But it's almost like it, the thing that they're trying to keep alive, the little Wally style green, green sprout, the last remnants of Ghibli, they're beholden to it. They don't see themselves as the talent, they're the caretakers. Mm. So when he was talking, he was like, we're never going to be as good as the forefathers of old, which is like a line directly from um, Waking Sleeping Beauty, where uh, I think Don Hall said, we're never gonna get back to uh, uh, the, uh, the glories of our heyday, but that can't be helped. I mean, he's saying it in a dry way, and it's like, well, never gonna be as good as Sleeping Beauty. They would be. Beauty and the Beast was just around the corner, as was The Little Mermaid. Mm. So when we actually sat down and watched Mary and the Witch's Flower, it was several years ago, this was their debut film and Mary herself serves as the Totoro mascot for the company, Ponoc. And we didn't particularly love it because it felt like it was doing Ghibli but didn't have the impact of something like A Spirited Away. You aren't as perfect as Spirited Away or the obvious- See, now you sound like Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> you folded your arms though and you looked like Hayao Miyazaki. <laughs> just need a little white beard. And you got the glasses already, so. <laughs> Very neatly trimmed. Anyway, it's not as good as Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, it's, um, again, based on a uh, children's book, The Little Broomstick by Mary Stewart. And we watched it and thought, well, this is, you know, that it seems very like a Harry Potter story. It's just that Mary never really gets to know the students of Hogwarts that she gets flown to. Uh, and The Little Broomstick was written in 1971 and Joe Rowling most definitely read it and went, oh yeah, I'm gonna... Steal that. Steal that. Mm -hmm. How dare you plagiarize my work. I will come after you fanfic writers with rods of iron. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway, you know what? What's this got to do with Joe Rowling? Apparently everything, because she pinched so much of this, and from The Worst Witch, and from So You Want To Be A Wizard, and from The Weird Stone of Brazingerman, and from T.H. White's The Sword and the Stone. That's what really pisses me off, is she clearly read all the same books I did and went in a direction that I find uncomfortable. I'm having that. Anyway, Mary and the Witch's Flower is about a little red-haired witch uh, who uh, 
gets told about a magical college, goes there, and within the space of a day or so, solves a really becomes their best becomes their student. best student and uh, uh, and solves a, a, a really long abiding problem of corruption and captive magical creatures and trespassers will be transfigured and there's 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 issues at this magical college and it looks lovely and. We went back and actually read The Little Broomstick, and it is surprisingly faithful to that adaptation. They did, however, make it more emotionally engaging by connecting it to Mary's mother, which isn't in the book at all, and is actually one of the most admirable and heartfelt parts of the film. It's not a magnificent start. It is, however, a very steady start, a very good way of, uh, of illustrating we start as we mean to go on. They also made a bunch of shorts, Modest Heroes, which is three little like 15 minute shorts that uh, we saw on Netflix. There was also a little documentary uh, about them. It was Nishimura talking about how he needed to make sure that everybody trained in animation so that they could be very expressive without having to resort to language so much because there's a, there's a lot of visual storytelling in these ones. The middle one, uh, the middle one, uh, there's a lot of visual storytelling in these ones. It's uh, the first one is about three little borrower types who live underwater and they seem their mother seems to depart and they're left with their father but then they get separated from their father and there's a lot of like the older brother having to sort of step up to protect his younger brother specifically their mother's gone into what seems to be some kind of hibernation in order to have a baby yeah it feels connected to both Arietti and Totoro, so it, 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 that's the most on-brand for Ghibli. The second one actually made me genuinely nervous. It's all about a boy who's allergic, a little boy who's allergic to egg, and his mother, played by Maggie Q in the uh, American voiceover version, is, you know, she's gentle with him and she likes her son and he likes her, but they are both kind of terrified that egg will somehow find its way into his food and he will go into anaphylactic shock his throat will swell up and he will suffocate and die which is a very real possibility and it's tense it is a tense way of conveying how the other half who have serious allergies live so like Anyone who complains, I can't eat my peanuts on this plane, this is an outrage. Peanuts are what you eat on planes. It needs to be, let's watch the in-flight movie. It's about eggs. <laughs> it needs to be, oh, okay, right, so it might kill someone. Okay, that, uh, that, that, yeah, that does put it in perspective. I still want my peanuts, but now I at least see that they might kill someone. And you know, people go, oh, you got to watch out for everyone these days. It's like, oh, yeah, some of these things might really hurt someone. Oh, so many allergies. We didn't have them in my day. Yeah, because medical technology was stupid in your day. Like, I saw one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. We went around the science museum, and there's a history of medicine at the top floor that barely anyone goes to, and it's sort of, medicine throughout the ages. Let us begin with trepaning, where if you had a headache, they would knock a hole in your head to let out the evil spirits and I'm like oh god well thank god we moved on from that and they were like here is what relatively modern medical tech looks like in 1980 the year you were born Alex and I'm like that's an iron lung and it's a trepaning rod and a hammer <laughs> <laughs> most like history of medicine stuff you can't really keep in a museum because it's plants yeah well, yeah, <laughs> they, they did have a wise woman. Like the first off, she's sort of giving someone plants and it's curing their headache with a little bark there's tincture. A, there's a poster at the side that says, two things, my lord, must she know of the wise woman? 
<laughs> yes. Uh, and then the next bit was her being burned as a witch. I and was just going to say, the history of medicine, Edison dunking Scudstall. Which ties in with Mary and the Witch's Flower. <laughs> Anyhow. And the third short is all about a man who appears to be invisible, but also ephemeral. Like, he, he wears clothes, which you can see, but those clothes are holding him to the earth. And if he puts down the fire extinguisher he's walking around with him, he doesn't have that anchor, and he starts to fly off into the sky. It's a constantly really extraordinary story. At, yeah, he's constantly at risk of being picked up by a strong wind mm. or... And I won't spoil how it ends, but it's a wonderful little encapsulated story. And it is exactly what the makers of Earwig and the Witch needed to be doing with their animation for a year or so before making Earwig and the Witch. Try shorts, because those forced you to go, what's this about? How do we convey that in a short amount of time? Economical with our art, but at the same time showing what we can do. Shorts are little stories. There's no point having a short that's pointless, because what are you doing with it at that point? It's a tech demo then. But these are both tech demos and ways of storytelling. Earwig and the Witch would not work as a short, would not work as a long. It's meaningless and annoying. And it also feels like a load of other stories that go somewhere with it. So that's why it's so frustrating. Of Japanese films released that year, at the Japanese box office, Mary and the Witch's Flower came in at number six, after Detective Conan, Crimson Love Letter at number one, Doraman the Movie 2017, which is not the same as Stand By Me Doraman or its sequel Stand By Me Doraman 2, Gintama, Pokemon the Movie I Choose You, and at number five, Let Me Eat Your Pancreas, which is on our list of films to see, and apparently is very lovely. This summer, Maybe even before this goes out, they are releasing their second film, The Imaginary, which looked lovely in the trailer. And they are going up against Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki with How Do You Live as he returns for his final, final, final film. Or as it was subsequently retitled, The Boy and the Heron, which we will cover at a later date. Perhaps in conjunction with Ponnock's The Imaginary, which comes out in mid-December of 2023. And the name of the studio, Ponok, comes from the Serbo-Croatian word for midnight, meant to signify the beginning of a new day. And I don't think there's any way more hopeful that we can end this bittersweet exploration through the many, many years of Studio Ghibli. We will be back to cover Spirited Away in depth and anything else that either studio does in the future. We're on board for the long haul now, folks. So I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's out. Don't watch Earwig and the Witch. <laughs> <laughs>
Finbar McCollum, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vehi, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Palmer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayu, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman.
Do you cry if I die? Would you remember?